Have you ever had to find someone you've never met before? A couple of weeks ago, I went down to uh, Sydney and I was to meet up with someone who I'd met about four years ago, but I couldn't really remember what they looked like, okay? And they said, just, uh, we'll just, we agreed, we'll just meet out the front of the church in the middle, in the heart of Sydney, just near Wynyard Station. And uh, that was just too much for me. So I sent a message to one of my mates and said, can you send me a photo of this guy? Because I just need to make sure that I connect with the right guy. But what about if you didn't have the opportunity to have a photo of someone? It, it makes it pretty tough to find someone, doesn't it? And sometimes, I don't know whether this has ever happened to you, but sometimes you can meet someone and you kind of go, you are totally different to what I expected, all right? And walk straight past them. I remember, I've been a, a pretty big John Piper fan over the course of my life and um, I'd listened to him for many years and he's got this booming authoritative voice and then I actually saw a picture of him. And I was just that, he just doesn't look like the way that I thought he would look. Um, and in fact, this kind of uh, mechanism, kind of, you can even see it in the Bible. Uh, the criticisms made of the, uh, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 10, um, that, that people were saying of him, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. All right? So you've got this thing going on where people's perception of Paul was actually uh, different from, uh, from what he actually was and here's here's the big idea I'm, I'm trying to thread the needle today and you can tell me at the end whether i succeeded or not maybe just text me after the second service that would be helpful um the way that you perceive someone or the view that you have of someone affects the way that you relate to them you ever have you ever noticed that so your perception of the person's character actually determines the way that you do relationship with them so if someone for example uh lies to you that will inform something that you think about their character, all right? And then, in turn, that'll actually have an effect on the way that you actually uh, relate to them, all right? So here's... Let me just track to the next point. Who you think God is will affect the way that you relate to God. Is that cool? Who you think He is will affect the way that you relate to Him. And it's not just theoretical, okay? What we're talking about here is what you believe about God transitions into the way that you actually relate to him one of the things you may have heard me say if you've been in redemption groups or uh, maybe I've talked about it in church sometimes is uh, the difference between people's theology their stated theology and their functional theology okay what people the theology that people operate on the truths about God that they operate on or mistruths uh, are the actual ones that they think all right that's kind of their view of God. So, for example, if you go home and something bad happens and you get really, really anxious for the next three days and try to work out ways to control it, you're actually saying something about who you think God is, all right? So your perception of God, your view of God, informs the way that you actually relate to Him, all right? Here's the catch, though. Um, your view of someone can actually help or hinder, all right? So I've kind of cashed out a little bit negatively, but it can actually help, right? It actually makes relationships really fluid. Why does it make relationships really fluid? Because you don't always know everything about the other person. In fact, you never know everything about the other person. Who here got married and thought they knew a lot about their spouse? Put your hand up right now. Oh, come on, seriously. <laughs> Put your hand up now if you go, I didn't really know much at all. Okay, cool. All right. One of the, um, and this is just a bit of a side note, here's the thing, when, when, uh, 
when you become a Christian, when you decide that you want to follow Jesus, um, you know a bunch of stuff about God, but you don't know everything. And one of the things that actually happens sometimes is, is people have this jarring moment sometimes where God disappoints them, right? But what's actually happening is there's a challenge happening to someone's view of God, not to who God is himself. Does, it, does that make sense? And that, that can actually happen in marriage too, right? Can't it? It's just like you kind of get in there and you've had this view or this perception of who the other person is and then you realise they just leave their undies lying around all the time, all right? And so your view of them is different to, uh, to who they are in reality. That's not helping, is it? All right. Yeah, it's, it's scarring some people probably. This is a little bit of a sketch uh, out, I think, of the way that trust works in relationships, right? Is everyone cool with the fact that you can't really have a relationship without trust? Is everyone cool with that? Okay. Uh, Someone can tell us what they're like, then they behave in certain ways, we gather evidence of the way they behave and we formulate a view of the person and then that actually leads us to either trust or distrust the behaviour that we can't see. Does that make sense? So when you got married, you had a whole bunch of ideas about the character of the other person, right? But if you got married and you're 25 and you're going to live till you're 75, right? By definition, you've got 50 years of behaviour of the person you're marrying that you don't know about, okay? And anything could actually happen in those 50 years. And what are you actually basing a lot of your relationship and your trust on? Well, you're actually basing it on their character, Okay? If you're someone, and this is just the way that relationships work, right? If you're someone who wants to be sure about every single behaviour before you trust someone, you're not going to have a relationship with many people, if any at all. Is, it, is everyone with me? Because it just doesn't work like that. Because you can't know that. And some people in relationships actually push really hard in that direction. And they kind of go, I just want to know everything that you're doing. And you just can't do relationships like that because that's not how it works. The way that it works is you get a sense of someone's character and then you entrust yourself to them based on that. And I think this actually works in the context of trusting God, all right? God reveals who he is by creation, history, uh, revelation, the Holy Spirit. He acts in line with his character. We observe his behaviour and formulate a view of him and then we trust the behaviour that we can't see. Well, that's the theory. I mean, we all know that's a bit tough sometimes, right? Because you just kind of go, I don't know. I mean, I've, I struggle with this, this, uh, this doubt myself. It's like, do I fully trust God? Because he actually might take me in a direction that I don't think is a good place for me to go. You see, the question mark there is I actually want to know the way that he's going to behave before I'm going to trust him, but he's not going to tell you. And in fact, in almost every relationship that you have, you don't know what other people are going to do. So what's your only other option and what's actually the most reliable option is to trust someone's character, okay? Now, why is this relevant? Some of you are going, I thought we were doing Ephesians. Um, Why is this relevant? This is really relevant because you don't know that much about God. Okay? You just don't. And I'm not, that's not a negative thing. It's just a reality, right? I mean, my dad always used to talk about people having a pea brain, all right? A brain the size of a pea. Now, here's the thing. Compared to the greatness and the expansiveness of who God is, um, you've got a brain the size of a pea, probably. Maybe less. True? And you, you don't know 
what he's actually going to do. Now, I remember being in Sydney, lived in Sydney for about eight years, and when I was in Sydney, I went and heard this uh, preacher uh, do some teaching at this camp, I think it was. I can't even remember where it was, but this particular moment stood out to me because someone in the room, they were talking about the Trinity, how you've got God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and there's three persons but one God, right? And if you can explain that, you can help me later on. But uh, that's basically the big idea with God, right? And this person asked the question, is there a possibility that there could be more than three persons in God? Right? Now think about that. Is there a possibility that there could be more than three persons? And you know what this preacher said? He said, I think it's possible. All right? So, and here's the reason why he said it. He said, look in your Bible and see if you can find a passage that says there are only three persons. There are no more than three persons. Is that, is that a bit of a head spin for you? Oh, it's possible, right? Now, this week I, uh, I got some feedback on some uh, study that I'm doing. And uh, part of the uh, process of, of doing the feedback was... Um, of getting the feedback is that a whole bunch of people have to tell me what they think about what I wrote, basically. It's a bit of a carve-up, I'll be honest. I mean, you just have people right across the theological spectrum. Um, I had about 3,000 words of criticism of my, uh, my stuff that I wrote, which is, it's always, it's really our building. You feel great after that. Um, and uh, one of the things that they picked me up on was um, that they, the, one of the... Uh, lecturers at a Bible college somewhere else in Australia that will re- remain unnamed actually said, you're assuming that Adam and Eve were literal historical persons in this piece, all right? I'm just going, okay. So then he, um, he started talking about people who don't think, like Christian evangelical people who don't think that they were literal actual people, all right? He goes, and you, you need to write some stuff about that. So I start reading about this stuff and I tell you, there's a bunch of thoughts by a bunch of people out there uh, about, about this stuff. There's a lot of controversy about it, right? Now, I'm not saying for a second this morning that I don't... I still think that they are literal historical people, okay? But you know what it did is it took me into the place where I'm just going, man, there is actually a bunch of stuff that we don't know, all right? There's a bunch of stuff that we just don't know and we don't know whether it's... We don't know all the details of that. And you know why we don't know? Because, uh, and this is a really important doctrine of the church, because the scriptures are sufficient but not exhaustive. Okay? They don't tell you everything. In fact, you wouldn't have enough books to tell you everything about God, would you? But they tell you what you need to know. This is kind of the old need-to-know basis, right? (laughs) 2 Timothy 3 verse 15 to 17 says, "...the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus." All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Here's the thing. You've got everything in the Bible that you need to know to be saved and to follow God. Okay? Is there much more information than that? Absolutely, there's heaps more information than that. Now, some of you still are going, can you tell me what that has to do with Ephesians? All right? And, and anyone thinking that? Okay, so let's go there right now. If you've got your Bibles, can you go to Ephesians 1? Ephesians 1. Now, we've been working our way through three... We're going through the whole book, but we've specifically been working our way through three 
to 14. And we're going to, um, maybe I'll just read the whole lot again. So Ephesians 1, starting at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And this is where we're going to focus, 11 to 14. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the whole notion of predestination. All right? And today, I just want to revisit that a bit because Paul revisits it in Ephesians 1, verse 11. And do you know what? Uh, Predestination, for those who are kind of new at it, is the fact that God chooses us before we choose Him. All right? And it's His choosing of us that actually provides the framework in, in order for us to choose Him. If He left us alone and He didn't actually engage with us, specifically and he actually didn't pour out his grace toward us no one would actually turn to him now some of you at that point you just kind of go whoa hang on and and we talked about this right is the connection the coupling between what's God's choosing and what's our choosing and our response well here's my first point Oz Guinness actually says this he says the chief business of faith is to let God be God okay and I want to suggest to you today that one of the things I think that can happen with uh, whenever you talk about predestination is people actually start going, well, God's evil or he's not good or he's, what, what about him not choosing other people but he's choosing these people? What, what about that? And it's like we start grappling with trying to work out what all of the outcomes are in that particular situation. All right? Now, do you get why I gave you the intro that I gave you? Because you don't need to know necessarily all of the details about this. What you do need to do is you need to trust, trust in God's character. All right? Here's the, uh, the bottom line. I, I'm wanting to help you this morning pastorally with, with, uh, with understanding and handling the notion that God chooses, that God predestines. And you can see there at the back end of uh, verse 11 there, he works all things according to the counsel of his will and I want to ask you this morning um, and I'm not saying that you you can't have debates and you can't try and work out details all right but in terms of a global kind of thought this morning are are you able to let God be God this morning you see you can you can get hung up for example on predestination and just kind of go I want to know the details of everything that God's doing there or you could actually say I know his character and I can entrust that to him I can let God be God and and he'll look after things and things will be okay. And let me just press 
just a little bit further into that. And I'm not necessarily springboarding off predestination here, but I, I want to just ask you to reflect for a moment about what your view of God is. Is it sanitised? Is it small? Because you know what he's going to do is he's just going to bust outside of your view of him often. And what you actually find, and, and I, don't, I don't in any way want to sound um, like I'm lacking compassion or empathy, but a lot of times when people go through suffering, the biggest grief that's actually going on there is that God's not the person that they thought he was and that he was supposed to be doing a certain kind of thing and he's not doing that. Well, what's he doing in that moment? Well, he's busting outside of your framework. He's busting outside of the box that you put him in. And I think predestination, in a sense, is a little bit like that. It's like we kind of sit here and we're just going, I just want to work it out. I want to know the details and how is he doing that. I want to make sure he's being fair. And at the end of the day, part of what's going on is he's busting outside of your framework. He's busting outside of it. All right? And, you know, I want to say to you this morning that when he busts outside of your framework, it's really, really good for you when he does that. It's, real, it's a head spinner, right? And you might feel like you're spiritually fainting and you're out cold on the floor because you're just going, all of a sudden, this person that I thought I knew is different to what he was. But the problem actually isn't him. You get that? The problem was your perception of who he was. And I want to encourage you today that you can trust God even with something like predestination where you actually are uncomfortable with some of the questions that it raises in your mind. You know why you can trust him? Because you know his character. And if you love him and you follow him and you belong to him, you entrusted yourself to his character in the very beginning. And this is not new. Is it? Are you with me? This is not new. And you can, I'm really just saying, you can do this. All right? Now, there was, um, has anyone ever heard the term iconoclast? An iconoclast is someone who goes on a bit of a crusade to shatter religious images or, or, or um, strongly held kind of beliefs, all right? And it tends to happen from people on the inside. So basically, if you go back, uh, there was a bunch of um, Protestant reformers that were iconoclasts, and they actually went in and basically decided they want to smash a whole bunch, I think, of the... My understanding is of the Catholic kind of icons that were used for worship because they thought they were idolatry, all right? So you've got someone inside the movement who's actually going in and smashing something that is um, kind of a limiter on, on their perception of who uh, God is. And here's, here's the bottom line. I think that God wants all of us to be iconoclasts with our own views of who God is because he's beyond them, all right? You know, the, uh, the line, the witch and the wardrobe, there was a, uh, a classic um, conversation in there between the beavers and the kids. Um, and uh, one of the kids asked the beavers, is Aslan safe? And the response was, they, they basically laughed. They said, safe? Aslan's not safe, but he is good. Do you see the difference? One of them is focused on behaviour and the outcome, and the other one's focused on character. And so the beavers are saying to the kids, you can trust the character of Aslan even when you don't always tr trust or, or, or not always happy with his uh, actions and what he actually does. So don't let, uh, when we talk about predestination, don't let um, thoughts about God being unfair and capricious 
Um, just don't let uh, something that's beyond your intellectual horsepower contaminate your view of who God is. Come back with me to uh, Ephesians 1. Do you see this here in Ephesians 1? In him we have obtained an inheritance, having pre- been predestined, how? According to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will. You see the last half of that verse 11, you know what it's actually speaking of? It's saying that God's acting comes out of his character and who he is. So you can be confident that it's going to be okay. So here's where I want to go now. What kind of guarantee, what kind of evidence do we have in Ephesians 1 verse 11 to 14 of God's character? Well, let's, let's go to this bit. Well, we've got inheritance. Let's have a look. Ephesians 1 verse 12. Actually, verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance. Then verse 12, so that we who were the first hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Now, just a quick note in terms of understanding this scripture. That verse 12 is telling you that the people uh, who Paul's actually talking about there are the Jews. All right? And that makes sense because if you go back to verse 10, all right, Paul's actually been saying that the ultimate plan of God in Jesus is to bring everything into unity. And that includes the Jews and the Gentiles, a major theme in Ephesians. So Paul's actually saying here that the Jews um, get a special inheritance from God. The ones that actually believe in Jesus get a special inheritance. And then if you go down to verse 13, in him you also, who's the you also there do you think? The Ephesians. Did someone say the Ephesians? The Gentiles, right? Good, because Ephesians was written to Gentiles. So what he's actually saying here is there's an inheritance for Jews who love Jesus, but there's also an inheritance for um, Gentiles who love Jesus, all right? Which is us, right? How are we going? We doing okay? All right. Now, I'm just... I, I hope at the end of today that you're clear about some stuff, but there's some stuff here today that's going to be a bit of a head spinner, and it might have happened already, but I'm just going to give you a little bit more. Okay, there is a debate in these verses amongst interpreters and commentators about whose inheritance is actually being talked about. Okay, I'm going to give you the uh, the ESV version on the left and then the NIV version on the right. Okay, now if you heard if you heard what I said in the first 15 minutes of this message, you'll be okay with this. All right, why will you be okay? Because it's okay not to know some things. Because we know what God's character is like and it'll be okay. Alright? If you are someone who just wants to be certain about absolutely everything and know everything before you can put your trust in it, you're probably a really painful person to live with. (laughs) Alright? Sorry, was that some of you going, that's me. He's talking about, well, you you kind of probably are, alright? And we'll just, we'll, we'll be good at laughing at ourselves here. Because uh, seriously, I'm like that. I just want to know all the details. And so I get the details all in a line and then I'll go there. And one of the things God ha- has had to teach me over the years is you, you don't need to know everything, Peter. You need to know some really important central things and then you need to operate in that direction, right? But I trust that you can get there. If you're someone who's a bit like me, who struggles with that, I trust that you can get there. Because this is going to be a little bit loose 
All right, not in a negative way, and I hesitate to use that word, but it'll be just a fraction loose. Here we go. Here's verse 11. In him, in Jesus, we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, who gets the inheritance in that one? We do, right? And was it? I'm not doing trick questions for this. For the next five minutes, as a trick question, quarantine. Here's the NIV version, right? This is the most, um, by volume, it's the version of the Bible that's been sold the most out of all. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Here's a trick question. Where's inheritance in that one? It's not there, all right? So what you've got here is you've got two really reliable translations of the Bible that, where the translators are trying to grapple with what the Greek, which was the original language, is actually communicating. One of them drops the idea of inheritance altogether. Okay? The other one kind of maintains it. Um, and I guess you, you might even read into it that chosen there might actually mean that God's chosen an inheritance for himself. Maybe. All right? Verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. We're all pretty good with that. Got most of the crowd back on board now. All right. Verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, was sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believe, you're marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Have I got a neat Nick out there who's going, yeah, I'm comfortable with that? Is it? No, I don't. I don't. Okay, a couple, all right? And, and here, here's the thing. Remember, it starts with inheritance and ends with inheritance. Here's the last bit. Who is the guarantee? The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory, all right? And this is where it gets a little interesting because the NIV says the Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So you want to see the problem there? So I was talking to a good mate of mine who uh, is a pastor in Sydney in an Anglican church and I said, what would you do? He goes, oh, I'll just pick the one that the translation goes with. And I was going, yeah, okay. All right, so we've got two really good translations going in different directions. I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do both. (laughs) All right, let's just do both. You know why? Because both are actually biblical. In the Bible, it's really clear that you get an inheritance. So let's start there. All right, let's start there because I'm pretty psyched about that. Okay. What kind of inheritance do you actually get? Well, have a look at this from Romans chapter 8. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons. That sounds familiar from Ephesians 1. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. An heir is someone who's a family relative who gets good stuff. Do you know what the good stuff is that you're going to get now? Suffering. All right? And, and Paul kind of thinks that. He actually thinks that suffering's going to be really good for you, right? And the Bible talks lots about it, right? But you know the good stuff that you're going to get, the fullness of your inheritance, is you're actually going to get glory. Who's up for a bit of glory? Yeah? And I mean, if you've been in the place or you know someone who's been going through some really intense suffering, glory sounds really nice, doesn't it? It's not like neutral sweet, all right? Kind of fake sweetness. 
It's like that is rich. If we're going to a place where it's going to be blissful and glorious and amazing, I want to go there. That is your inheritance. All right? Colossians 1 verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in, in light. You see, at the end of the age, God's going to redeem you if you love him. And you know what he's going to do? He's going to open the treasuries of heaven. And if you've seen uh, Smog, Smog, how much? Smog, Smog. I don't know. See, now, now I've got to edit the version before it goes online. You've seen that? Have you seen that in the Lord of the Rings? That massive big hall of, of golden coins that the dragon is in? Is just hanging out in there? All right? Like, that's nothing. That's pathetic compared to what God's got coming for you. You go to Ephesians 2, it talks about the fact that God's plan is to pour out his grace and his kindness to you forever. That's a heck of an inheritance, right? And do you know how you get connected to that? You get connected to that because Jesus brings you into the family and you become adopted and you actually have rights to that inheritance. This is amazing. And it's this interpretation of the text is really biblical, but I just want to take it up another notch because I think it's absolutely phenomenal <laughs> because the Bible actually talks about the fact that you are God's possession. You're his inheritance. All right? Now, some of you, you probably, you sit there and you just go, whoa, 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 hang on. All right? Maybe, maybe the wooden spoon price. <laughs> True? So maybe humans would be the wooden spoon prize. But you know the whole way through the scriptures from the Old Testament, I'm personally persuaded that this passage in Ephesians 1 here is actually talking about the fact that we are God's inheritance. Think about that. We're his possession. The whole way through the Old Testament, uh, Psalms 33 verse 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Just think for a moment about what this means for you. Think about what it means in terms of how much you are valued by God. Can you think about that? Well, for all of us, you're just going, okay, technically, if someone is kind of out there and their gig was to just kill me, all right, that's not a reward or a prize for me. (laughs) But for God, it is, right? He looks at you, the people who love him, and just go, yeah, you're the people who killed my son, but I want you to be my inheritance. You're going to be my possession, my treasured possession. Not the wooden spoon prize, a treasured possession. Listen to this from Deuteronomy 7 verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord, your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Do you hear that? And he's talking about Israel. But you know what the New Testament tells you? Is that when you become a Christian, you get grafted into Israel. All right? In, in, in effect, you kind of become a spiritual Jew, God's chosen, treasured person. What about this in Deuteronomy 32, 8 to 9? When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Now, that's kind of saying, like one commentator I read is kind of saying, when God set things up, he said, the angels, you can have these people for your inheritance. All right? The nations. What does it say? But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, his allotted heritage. You see that? God's going, no, I'm going to keep you for me. Do you hear that today? Do you hear today that God's saying to you, if you love him and you're part of his family, you are his special treasured possession. 
You know, yet, I mean, and this is just a really bad analogy, but one of my kids, it's bad because God's so much better, right? One of my kids has got a remote-controlled car that is it's pretty quick, right? And it's lots of fun. You know what he does? He, he goes out and he races it, and when it gets dirty, he brings it in and he cleans it, all right? And he looks after it, and he's, he's learned all the stuff that you've got to learn about looking after a remote-controlled car battery, and if anyone's got one, you know what I'm talking about. You don't just go nuts with them because the battery's going to fry themselves, and, and he's learned all of that. You know what he does? It's got pride of place in his room. He kind of, he sits it on the side. He looks after it. He's, I think he's still got the original box that it came in. It's probably 12 months old by now. What is it? It's his treasured possession. He looks after it. It's special to him. Like, I reckon right now some of you still don't even believe me. You don't believe me. Like, you don't believe me that God sees you as his treasured possession. You're just going, no, BB price. That's what I am, all right? That's what it is, wooden spoon price, okay? And God's going, no, you're not. You're not. You're treasured and you're really special to me. Come back with me to um, Ephesians 1. What does God do with someone who's his treasured possession, his inheritance, Verse 13, in him you also, when you heard of the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, let me tell you what sealing is about. Sealing is about ownership. Back in the day, you would seal uh, cattle and even slaves so that ownership was never in doubt. Think about this. God's gone further than just saying, you're my treasured possession. He's giving you a deposit which is the Holy Spirit to live inside of you, that would seal you and say, that person is mine. Isn't that good? It just goes even further, you know? And here's the thing. Let's just use a really dull example. You go and you go to buy something, and what do you do often is you put a deposit down, all right? And if you, what's the idea of a deposit? The idea of a deposit is not that you would break it and lose money. The idea of a deposit is you'd put some money down and that would be the guarantee that you're going to complete the, the deal, all right? And here's the thing, God's not looking to back out on you. Do you hear that? He is not looking to back out on you. And so when you become a Christian, you love him. And if you're not a Christian here today, you need to become one, all right? Because this rocks, doesn't it? Is anyone with me on this? Like being God's child and being treasured by the king of the universe is amazing. And what has he done? He's actually giving you his Holy Spirit to live inside of you. And that's God saying to you, I'm going to come through on this. And there's no shadow of a doubt that I'm going to come through on this. Now, what, how is this relevant to living life? Let me, let me give you a couple of practical expressions of this. Here's the first one. Why do we even think that we have a decision to make when we're faced with temptation? What am I asking? Here's what I'm asking. If we actually belong to God, right, why do we even have a Why do we even think we've got a decision whether we can do something or not? Do, do you get what I'm saying? So the temptation comes in and you just kind of go, okay, well, right, right now I'm going to decide what I'm going to do. And I could either follow God or not follow God. Now, the Bible doesn't really have a whole lot of stuff to say, I don't think, about that kind of nonsense. The Bible actually says really clearly in Corinthians, it says you actually have been bought with a price, you're not your own, so honour God. That's what you do, all right? Here's the thing. 
you become a Christian, you become Jesus's, you become owned by him, and you go with him. Now, some of you go, oh, it's a bit hard. Well, it's not really, all right? Because if you're a kid, that's what you do, right? You become part of the family and then randomly decide you don't want to be part of it every now and then when something takes your fancy, do you? Like, that doesn't make sense. Is it, anyone with me on that? You become part of a family, you stay in the family and you go with the family, all right? And why can you do that? You can do that because you know the character of the father of the family, don't you? See, this comes right back to where I was at the start of the message. You know that God's good so that when a temptation comes up, you say, I don't even have a decision in this point. He owns me, I belong to him, I'm going with him. And you know that it's always going to be the best to do that. Amen? So that's one application. God sealed you, you belong to him. Look, you don't even have the right to make a decision about whether to give in to temptation or not. That's, that's one of the applications. But I want to I go even further than that. Because I think um, one, of, one of the lines I've started using with people is I, I hear people say things and I go, that's really good, but we want to do even better than that. All right? And I think it's really good to think about the fact that you don't even have a right to make a decision, but we actually want to do even better than that. You know why? Because Jesus, the gospel, because God's, God's goodness toward us is even better than that. Here's the thing. I'll just, I'll, t- I'll tell you a bit of a story. And uh, I hesitate to tell this because uh, um, it's, it's, it, to share this before has, has been a bit of a stumbling block to me sometimes. So, I, uh, I grew up in a Christian family and um, I went through a really extended time in uh, my 20s of doubting God and doubting the existence of God. And um, it's really difficult. It was when I was uh, working at the school here. I th- it probably went for about eight years, okay? I don't think it had to go that long. Um, who knows that sometimes you just prolong things that don't need to go as long as they go. Well, that, that was kind of me. Um, and do you know, um, I, I have no doubt that I was a Christian during those times. But you know, sometimes I, I worked at the school here and sometimes I came to school and I wasn't even sure whether God was real or not. Okay? Um, and that, they were exceedingly difficult years for me. But do you know one of the things that actually happened in me in the midst of those eight years? And it was the weirdest thing is even in my darkest moments of doubt, I found myself crying out to God. It was just, it was just, it was a weird reality. In fact, as, I, as I've looked back on it over the last three years, no, I'm kidding. I'm a bit old of that. But uh, as, as I've looked back on it, I've just, uh, I've just gone, that, that tells me, it spoke to me about the fact that God had actually put his spirit in me and he had a hold of me. You know why? Because even in my darkest moments, in my most difficult moments, there was something that was reaching out in me for him. And you know what that was? Is that that the spirit was in me and it was God, in a sense, in the middle of a great deal of shakiness that was going on for me at the time, it was God, in a sense, saying, I'm going to complete this job. I gave you a deposit... (laughs) as a guarantee, the Holy Spirit, and he's going to keep you, and he's going to complete you, and he's going to get this job done. God, 
God's spirit living inside of you is a guarantee that God will come good with the rest. And I want us to, just to finish today, then we're going to finish quickly here and then we're going we're gonna to sing. Why, what's, what we've been talking about is what God has done. What we've been talking about from 3 till, four, three, three, three till 14 is what God has done the wonderful things he has done. So why has God actually done what he has done? <laughs> you know why he's done what he has done? He's, he's done what he has done for the praise of his glory. That's what he's done, for the praise of his glory. And you know what, you know what God's looking for in, in those who love him? Family likeness. Isn't it? Family likeness. So if, if you sit here today and you read Ephesians 1, you go, man, how good is he? Well, he's wanting you to display that, all right? You know, all glory is. Glory is a public declaration of God's goodness. That's what it is, all right? And that's what God wants from you. If you love him, you go out and you become a public illustration and declaration of God's goodness. You have a family likeness. You know, people have said about uh, my boy's... Um, they say you can just you can tell that they're from the same family. <laughs> They've all got some similar kind of look to them. All right, I uh, I had twin older sisters. One was uh, well, still is, but blonde. Well, they're probably growing a bit now, but getting their hair coloured. A blonde and brunette. All right, twin older sisters. Here's the thing: uh, we had people growing up all of our lives who never got my sisters confused until they found out they were twins. All right, because they they're not identical. All right, and different coloured hair. All right? why, why are they getting confused after they find out about the fact that they're twins? Is because in their head there's an intellectual kind of similarity between the two, you know? And here's the thing. This is what God's looking for in his kid, is his, his kids, is he's looking for a family likeness. All right? And here's where um, Paul ends up. See, he's given you a bunch of doctrine, a bunch of truth there about God, but the purpose of, of doctrine and truth and theology is always to lead to worship. It's always to lead to the display of God's glory, all right? Now, some of you just go, oh, that's, that's a bit full on, all right? Like, God's in the center and like, well, is he this, you know, I mean, C.S. Lewis for a while thought that God was uh, an insecure old woman that needed praise, all right? You see there in uh, verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace, verse 12, to the praise of his glory, verse 14, to the praise of his glory. Here's the thing, um, everything in the universe <laughs> comes from and returns to God. He's the center of it. Who, who likes geometry? Anyone like geometry? Okay, so I'm just, I'm just going to do a little bit of geometry and I'm probably going to get myself in a bunch of trouble, but let, let's just start here, Okay. The, uh, the scriptures actually say that it's in God that we live and we move and we have our being. It's actually in him that all things hold together. Okay? Here's a circle with a center. Okay? When you draw a circle using a compass, the center is the critical part of the circle. True? And the circle, in a sense, holds together because it's oriented to the center. Is everyone, everyone cool with that? All right? If, the, if pieces of this circle decide they don't want to be oriented to the circle, to the center, I should say, the circle gets destroyed. Okay? 
In this world, the center of everything is God. It will always be like that. That will never, ever change. And that is the best way for this whole world and for your whole life to function, that God would actually be in the center. We orient around Him, all right? What does God do? Well, God is really generous to us, isn't He? He just pours out stuff to us, okay? But the one thing that we need to be careful about is just because He's generous to us doesn't mean that you're in the center, all right? You're not in the center. If any one person in this room got in the center of the whole of the universe, right, that would be one hell of a mess, if I can put it that way. It just would be. It's not meant to work that way. And sometimes I think, unfortunately, there's some people, there's some Christians that can kind of speak about the fact that God is such a blessing, loving God, in a way that it's almost like humans all of a sudden are now in the center of everything. That is not what Paul's talking about in Ephesians 1. And straight up, some of you kind of go, oh, does, you know, you have this thought inside of you that kind of goes, oh, does that mean he doesn't care about me? Well, that's just rubbish, right? We've just had like verse 3 to 14, and I have that sometimes, but it's just rubbish because we've had 3 to 14 just going, he is overflowingly blessing you with every blessing in Christ. Is that, is that true? And the best part about it is that he gets to stay in the center. As soon as humanity puts themselves in the center, mess starts to happen. Who knows that's true? That's what happens. I was even going to try and use gravity. What the, see, <laughs> gravity brings about order to our world, doesn't it? It makes things predictable, doesn't it? Gravity brings about order and gravity's always operating on us. What's it doing? It's pulling us down. And here's the big idea. I don't want to go into this one too, too much because it kind of runs out of steam, this metaphor. But here's the big idea is that, is that God's the center of everything and everything gets pulled in to him at the center. And he's the focus of everything. And that doesn't mean that you miss out. <laughs> All right? Ephesians 1 is so clear about that. You do not miss out, but it just works best. When, when you do that, you know, my, I've got four sons and I can be generous to my sons, but just because I've been generous to my sons doesn't mean that they become the father. Does that make sense? They just don't. And in fact, it's actually going to be best in our household if I'm being a good dad that they stay in their place and I stay in my place and, and between Ange and I that we lead the household. You know, with gravity, you can jump around all you like, right? And you're going to get pulled back down by it. In fact, you're all sitting down because of gravity right now, okay? Now, here's the thing. You can kind of kick against God being the center of everything. You can kick against him being the one who's the glorious one. But just like gravity, when you kick against that, you don't actually break gravity... And you don't break God, you break yourself. That's how it works. You know, that's true. It's been said that um, you can't break God's laws, you just break yourself against his laws. Because they, they are just there and they just work. You know, you could stand on the edge of this building on the roof and say, I'm going to defy the, the law of gravity 
and jump off it. And you know what will happen? You'll, you'll break yourself. <laughs> True? See, that the best way that life works for us is to respect and to utilize the law of gravity, not try to break it. All right? And here's the thing. God being in the center, it all being about God's glory is a really, really, really good thing. And it's right. Might just ask Nath to uh, and the music team to come up. Let me um, let me just summarise as they're coming up in verse in Ephesians one verse three to fourteen. You know what we've learnt? We've learnt that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. We've learnt that we're chosen. We've learnt that God has made us holy and blameless if we love Him. We've learnt that God's adopted us, that we're in Christ, that we've been redeemed, that we've been forgiven that we've been the recipient of the riches of his grace, that we've been united to Jesus, that we've got an inheritance, that we are an inheritance, that we've been sealed, we've got the Holy Spirit. Why? Because God wants you to go out and to live out the family likeness in the whole world. That's your job, okay? And it's your job to do that with people that love Jesus and it's your job to do that with people that don't love Jesus. Go out and, and fit in with the fabric of the universe that everything is about God and he's immeasurably good and live that out you know what a, uh, a doxology is <laughs> a doxology is to uh, make glory oral alright and Paul's always going from doctrine to doxology which is like praise and worship those who belong to God are to shine his excellencies. This is what we learn from 1 Peter 2 verse 9. Listen to this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Do you hear all these beautiful notes? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Who knows that our world needs a few more people proclaiming the excellencies of God? Okay? Who knows that in the last week, People have not been declaring many of the excellencies of Donald Trump. Who knows that? It's trouble, right? Some, hey, and I'm not even making a, a political statement. I'm just saying there's people just going, we're all worried now because we're worried about his character. Isn't that true? You know, part of our problem is that we too often think that God's like us, don't we? And he is, he is excellent. And, and we're called, if we're his kids, to live out the family license, to proclaim his excellency.